Hey, everybody. It's Jackie Johnson, host of Natch Butte. We talk skincare, we talk makeup, we talk all things beauty, and my guest this week is Ariana Maddox. Hi. What do we talk about, Ariana? Oh, my gosh. We answer all of your questions. We do. We talk about how our dogs were in a Pharrell video together. We talk about... Um, exfoliation. Oh, we talk about exfoliation. We talk about uh, tanning, self-tanning. We talk about laser hair removal. We, we go there. We dive, do a deep dive in my makeup bag. We And Tom's. And Tom's. <laughs> and Tom's Sandoval's. So maybe check out Natribute this week and see what we're talking about. See you there. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough. And to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D-S-T, T-L-D, you get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use the promo code FERAL and check out and get a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. If you like the music you're hearing there, the theme music, that's a band called Les Blanks. Josh Caldwell, he's a guest on the show. You might recall he also has got another band called Holy Folk that's really popular. You can check out both of those bands on just interwebs, those bands. Holy Folk is really great. That new album is pretty goddamn awesome. Uh, if you haven't listened to my show before, it is just what the title implies there. It's a free-formed conversation with me. Uh, less, you know, just kind of freewheeling. And uh, today I have a great conversation. I talk with actor, writer Pat Healy. He's in a shit ton of movies. Compliance, which was a very, uh, last year at the uh, Sundance, was very controversial and very popular. It's a great fucking movie. If you haven't seen it, see it. He's also in Ghost World, Magnolia. He's uh, worked with Werner Herzog. He's uh, He's an actor. He's a, he's not like when I've done acting, just shit talking my mouth, just pretending I'm just like my, me when I'm acting. It's just subconsciously or just in the back of my head. I'm just like just praying I'm not seen as the fraud that I am. But he, Pat Healy, he really can fucking act. And we get into some great conversation about it and about the biz and about life. And well, don't fucking listen to me talk about it. Can you hear? Can you hear that noise? Oh, I thought that there was like a clamping. Like my as I'm recording this intro, my girlfriend's in the kitchen, cooking for me. Uh, I usually do the cooking, by the way. I just want that to be known. I don't want to come off as some chauvinistic, weird guy who's like my chicks in the kitchen. Because usually, like this morning, I made smoothies for us. Uh, you guys, you're interested in our menu, right? Um, and uh, I made salmon earlier, Cajun salmon earlier this week. So you know. I'm a catch, and I've been caught. But enough about my stupid uh, life. 
let's uh, get into this conversation with the great Pat Healy. I don't want this to sound ass kissy, <laughs> please. <laughs> but like, I, I know a lot of people who act and or soda act. Like I've I've recited words of other people on stages and in cameras. But I, like, <laughs> but you are. I consider you like, I don't know. Like I could never do what you do. Like I think you're like Johnny. Like you're an actor. Like a real fucking guy. Well, thank you. It doesn't <laughs> sound ass kissy. I mean, that's just a. a I mean, uh, that's an accurate description because, like, you know, if somebody would go to school to train to be something or other, a carpenter or a uh, computer uh, thinger. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> my, my acting smarts and going and play or, or, you know, get an MBA in business or whatever. I mean, um, I think maybe the difference is that, uh, you know, being an artist is uh, something you could do without going to school and training to do. But that's what I happened to do, and then I I um, got an internship at, uh, at at Steppenwolf Theater, you know, one of the most prestigious uh, regional theaters in, in the country, uh, if not the most, and um, uh, and started you know basically apprenticing, and then moved right into understudying and acting and and learning from you know watching the best people and and getting stage time and uh just like you would have done as a comedian you know what right. i mean like uh, uh uh and then going to work on commercials and little parts uh one day on a movie uh one a few days on a television show for 20 years now so <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well, i mean that's you know that's yeah. that's what i do it's my job you know but i mean there's i just i know so many people who do it but like i just there's like you're just better <laughs> <laughs> well oh you're, oh you're saying my, I'm, I'm skilled and, and you think i do a very good job at it yeah I oh, mean, but okay. i mean like i think well, that is a little less you and you no. have a, <laughs> <laughs> but you also i mean you're very versatile because you can do you're, you're like a great dramatic actor you're also incredible at comedy and you also have done sketch comedy and stand-up like right that's that's a lot well, I think like it, I can do two good things. <laughs> yeah, but you know, if you wanted to, like you know, like what I really want to do always, as and I appreciate because I know your show, like in this particular series, is about is about art and artists. Is like uh, you know, I don't care if someone thinks I'm being pretentious. I'm an artist. I'm not a business person. I'm not a. Uh, I guess I, I can be an entertainer, and I can be a um, someone that makes people feel good. But I'm an artist. That's how I think of myself. It's my job, and it's what I get paid to do, and I'm fortunate. But yeah, I like to make art. So like, and what an artist should do is always like want to grow. So when opportunities came for me, I knew so many of you guys. So strangely, like we, our worlds did not intersect because the the, the Steppenwolf Theater is is walking distance from Second City. And we all hung out in the same bar, but those worlds rarely intersect. I mean, there's a few people that cross over. Yeah, I didn't really meet any of the comedy people till I came out to L.A. We all drink at because you at did a lot the, of stuff at, at the L House. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and I knew I had met like Michael Shannon a so few Mike times. Shannon and all you know, uh, all my friends from that time, Nick Offerman and uh, uh, you know. Paul oh, did Edelstein Offerman drink at the L House too? Oh, yeah, we all. I mean, we all met at Steppenwolf, and we all did stuff there. So. And we Isn't all that funny? hung we out were, there. Yeah, <laughs> we were probably like 
waiting in line for the bathroom together. Oh, and <laughs> we like, probably are crossing streams, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, like, the, I didn't do comedy. I came out here. But, you know, it was always like, okay, I'll do this now. Okay, now I also have a, a career as a screenwriter now. I, I, you know, never thought that I would be a screenwriter. But, like, right now the majority of my income is coming from that so that I can truly make um, – now there's some money coming in from acting again. But, like, about seven years ago, writing – became a, a a profession for me so make my living doing that then i could do these films that are smaller films that i don't get paid a lot of money to do but i can exercise my art you know what i mean yeah like um i don't know what it's been 15 years now but terrence malick made thin red line and he uh they asked him why it had been 20 years since he had made a movie and he was like well i ha- didn't really think a lot about it but if i were to like Answered, I would say that like I never ever wanted my living to depend on my art, because then it's naturally compromised, you know. So I did other jobs and I did other things and I would do rewrites and things like that and take you know odd jobs here and there and learn about stuff. But I never wanted to make movies. It once once it sort of becomes dependent on you having to make this much money, then it has to be compromised in some way. And I will say that, like, I'm not completely innocent in I've done things for money, you know. But generally now, about the last, I'd say, eight years, I have mostly focused on doing things because I want to do them. They don't always turn out great, but for the most part, they do. And as a result, I've watched my career uh, blossom both creatively and now financially, too, because I did things for the right reason, you know. Yeah, and didn't I heard this rumor years ago that you they wanted you to be the sprint yeah. PCS is the guy who used to wear the trench coat that yeah, old exactly. sprint Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A guy from Chicago, I yeah, think, Brian, uh, Brian Baker. Baker. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I had a And that, I wasn't really fond of like doing commercials and I didn't want to do them and I I was out here and I was working a lot. I'd been out here about a year and I I just done like you know little parts of like I did Magnolia and I done a bunch of episodes of NYPD Blue and I was doing other movies and I I was offered this I had auditioned for it and then like they said okay this is it and I didn't know it was going to be this huge campaign and it was going to be cardboard cutouts of me at Radio Shack and <laughs> you know it suddenly became this like really frightening prospect and um, they said okay well you uh here it is that you know they're it's time for you they're you could go in there and they're gonna put you on the satellite with the people from sprint um in new york you have the job you know at that point i didn't know it would be a multi-million dollar job but i knew it would be a lot of money um i was 27 years old and i spoke to some people paul thomas anderson among them of just about like what you know whether or not i should do this i knew that orlando jones had he had a big part of Magnolia, and then he became the Seven Up spokesman. And I don't know if there's any connection, but he was cut out of the movie. It seemed. It seems like these, like currently, it's less harmful. Yeah, definitely. but like it's in the nineties, it was was that that wasn't. Yeah, that was like. Yeah. And it seemed 90s. to really that could really fuck your for sure, especially if it's something where you're. Um, uh, comedic in some way or if it's like a, a problem I have a lot of I don't begrudge anyone doing commercials I have lots of my friends that do them and, and um, it's it's a job and a lot of them have families and a lot of them make their living or a guy like from like from Chicago Dave Pasquese who like you know 
made a fortune like is king of like the voiceovers yeah now david is you know showing up you know on veep and you know he's he's his career is like as an actor is happening now but he made you know a living doing that for a long time i i don't begrudge that at all i don't personally like the idea of let me explain this correctly so i don't sound like a douche (laughs) you don't i probably will anyway but uh, i I don't like the idea of using what is all right. I don't look like, um, you know, uh, Joe Handsome. You know, whatever. I'm fine with the way I look, but um, there are things about me that are interesting looking. In commercials, it seems to me what is interesting about you physically is used to make you look silly. Yeah, I, I was always did, I did a few commercials. Do you know and, what I mean? Yeah, I was always the pudgy office guy. <laughs> right. So it's like I, you know there there are those people. There's serious commercials, and then there's you know these comedy ones, and and whatever it is, whether it's you know I have bigger ears or I have you know a gap in my teeth or whatever, is used now. I wouldn't have a problem in a movie doing that, and I've done it. But I it may be a silly line, but I don't want. I'm not using that to sell some shit you know what i mean like i don't i'm not trying to come off as like mr high and mighty and i like i said i don't begrudge anyone but for my own personal reasons i'm not that's not a transaction i want to make i don't want to i don't want to use what is interesting about me to be to be made fun of to sell um you know beer or whatever yeah that's i mean that's why i stopped doing commercials because i felt like just even on an ethical level, like I was, I interviewed a guy who sued Coke for paramilitaries killing union, union oh, organizers really? in Colombia, and I was yeah. like, I can't have no. this well, guy. Well, yeah, there's certainly that. Yeah, <laughs> like no. I'm like, I don't want to be the wouldn't I would like to make that money, but I'm like, I can't be the face That's of Coke. That's blood money. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like most of those corporations are like, I don't really want to. Yeah. I just didn't feel ethically right yeah. about it anymore. And quite frankly, you know. Um, it would hurt my self-esteem too, because that you know, as much as you can separate yourself and you know who you are, and and certainly at that age, I didn't know who I was. I mean, and I didn't know that I didn't know who I was, but I did know who I was, and it would hurt my self-esteem to be see myself that way. It's still, I mean, even a few years ago, if someone said, "Oh, you were great in that," you were really creepy, even though if I was playing a creep, I'd take it personally. You know what I mean? So it's 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 you know, there's personal reasons. Like uh, just my own self-esteem too. It's not a bad thing to do. If someone wants to do a Coca-Cola commercial, I don't hold it against them. It's like that. That's their decision. I'm not going to impose my morality on someone else. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, it's also you're – I was doing – because it was. It's like, fuck it. I'm just going to make money. But it's like t- you're a bit more of a craftsman. And it's like it's a, it's a more of an insult to your art. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I, mean I need the money. I'm not I'm – not, beneath that but but yeah i i don't i tend to be in things for the most part that i would like to be in or like to see and um some of that's by design and some of it is is just by sheer little coincidence or luck or maybe i walk in unconsciously with a different attitude with something that i'm really excited about that gets me the job right um, but those be tend to be the things that I do, and now by design, the last you know, like I said, six, seven, eight years, with money in the bank from writing, I can do these these smaller projects, and and as a result, you know, ironically, they're bigger parts, and even though they're smaller movies, and technically less people see them, 
people notice me more because I'm not just in one scene or something. I'm the lead or one of the leads in the movie. So now I'm being offered, you know, bigger things or I'm being at least being able to audition for the bigger things or being called in, you know, uh, right. for, for, for bigger movies. And when do you think is, cause I love smaller films. Like I, I mean, I'm not like a total dick where I'm like, fuck blockbusters. Yeah, no, but, I love all films, but, you know, blockbusters are less and less appealing nowadays. Just They seem the, to be Well, getting... there's like a whole, uh, the, the commerce of it is international and there's release dates before there's scripts and things like that that just are naturally, that's just, that's just sort of the way it is. Yeah, you know? Spielberg I, and Lucas were saying that, you know, if, if they had one season where these blockbusters all bombed, yeah. they would be... Well, there's a few this imp- season, you know... Um, Spielberg and Lucas conveniently left out the fact that they created this monster. <laughs> but, uh, you know, no offense to them. I mean, they're they're you they know had, bo- they're yeah. both great artists. I mean, their films are good, so it's like you know um, they don't they don't really need to take the blame for that. But the, in terms of the kind of you know community or the kind of system that uh, those kinds of movies have fostered, it, it, those movies made a lot of money because they were good. Now it is just now it's like. I'll give you a good example. I mean, they, I don't think they mentioned this in this, but like Jaws opened in t- two theaters in L.A. and New York, and then everyone, this movie's great, and there were lines around the block, and there were pictures in the paper, and then it opened in more theaters and more theaters and more theaters. I was just reading, uh, I had forgotten this, Die Hard in 1988 opened on 21 screens. Whoa! I didn't know that. Yes. 21 screens. Word of mouth. Great movie. Now what happens? 3,000 screens, 4,000 screens, because it sucks. <laughs> they have to make all their money back that weekend, and that's why that first weekend number is so important. And you notice the numbers go down every week now, whereas in the 70s and the 80s, it was the opposite. It would grow. Even in the 90s, the late 90s, there's something about Mary is a movie that famously was never number one at the box office. Which movie? Never. There's something about Mary. Oh, I, I just heard the Mary. I missed yeah. The sem- yeah. There's something about, it was never number one at the box office. It was just a movie that, Opened, it did okay, and then everyone was like, "Go see this, go see this," and then that movie played for three months. It's t- it's too bad that doesn't it like happens a little bit more with independent films like the Lemley in Pasadena. You'll see that they something stays for a long time. You yeah, know? and it's like I, that's why I try to go see films there because it's like I want to support that. Well, another problem is that um, that the windows now because the the DVD window is like it comes out in three months or four months it's like a lot of people will stay at home because they have big screens at home I know I'll even do that now more just because there's less that I want to see you know sometimes it's financially even better like you get well yeah I mean this VOD stuff now they're releasing like even with the independents especially they're releasing them the same day yeah some of my films six weeks ahead of time which kills the theatrical why do you think they do that? that well because on the VOD, they don't spend any money on advertising. It's just a oh yeah they just, oh ten bucks boom 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 and you know it costs so much to advertise a movie now, which is something that Spielberg and Lucas did talk about, um, and that they can make all their money back that way. And then the theatrical is just sort of a token, like to the filmmakers, you know, because we said we do this. And also, I guess that keeps it in possible Oscar nom department actually no there's a problem with that because if it move if it opens up before or on the same day oh really yeah they do a thing called date and date where they open it up they have it on vod in the theater same day and they do it before it's not eligible that's interesting so what they're doing now is there's a movie called only god forgives which is the nick uh reffin movie with ryan gosling that's coming out 
they're doing day and date VOD, but they released it at one theater in Encino last week. <laughs> so that they get around the rules that way. They they showed it if it if it shows in a theater for a week, so that they can, you know, so it can be eligible for nominations. So, but it's it's like a. Uh, it's a weird like snake eats its tail thing because it's like, well, if they didn't do that six weeks before, would it make more money? Like we tried it with compliance. We, the deal that they signed with compliance was, you know, all these different companies wanted it, but Magnolia agreed and they're big with the VOD thing. Magnolia agreed to not release it in VOD and it did pretty well. I think it maybe didn't do as well as they wanted it to. But I think that movie did better than anyone could expect a rape drama to do. I mean, that movie made... It's my you know, favorite genre, rape drama. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that movie made, you know, half a million dollars probably. I mean, worldwide, that movie probably made a uh, million dollars, which is a lot for a movie like that that costs, you know, I'm not going to say how much, but a lot less than a million dollars. Yeah. It's um, just, to me, it's like, I don't know. Those are the kind of films that... I'm attracted to and sure. it, it breaks my heart that that's because like you were saying like in the 70s and even in the 90s you know there was like nobody's would be like I mean you'd like take swingers it's like nobody knew who the fuck those guys were right and it was like a you know it was a one of the one of the other problems is there's too much now I mean that that yeah. movement as great as it was uh, generated a generation of people like oh I can make my own movie and um and now with the technology being what it is, it's everyone can actually physically do that. <laughs> but I, I go back to this. I think it's the Patton Oswalt bit where he's talking about science and he's talking about the, the woman in her 60s who gave birth. And he says, science, it's all about coulda, not shoulda, right? <laughs> so it's like just because you can make a movie doesn't mean that you should. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't make art. We are all – after all – making art but like i don't know i feel like there should be some more judiciousness in terms of like what gets out there it's just like everybody wants product but it's just like do we really need all this and it's like it's clogging the 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 pipeline i mean this is probably really controversial for me to say because many of my friends do this but it's like and i'm not even sure if i know the answer to this but it's like there's too much and so the vod movies they won't – theater chains won't show them. Well, if you flip through it, it's just like, what the fuck is this? Like, no, <laughs> exactly. If theater chains won't show it except for Magnolia Films, Magnolia and uh, a Landmark is the same company. So Landmark will show the Magnolia Films that have been on VOD. And Drafthouse Films, who are putting out Cheap Thrills, which is the movie that I have coming out uh, <laughs> in early next year, uh, they have the, their own chain of theaters. Um, so they'll show those. But I don't know if they're doing that. I don't know if they've decided to do it the six weeks before. It's just a big window of time where they spend no money on advertising and they make millions of dollars and the money's actually not reported. You, they don't, those numbers aren't recorded. Oh. So, like, even if I had – I mean, I'm not saying anybody's scumbags or anything. And, and in fact, these people are, you know, really good and on the level. But um, if a movie like The Innkeepers – comes out six weeks before the theatrical. I, like, I, in my deal, I have money on box office. Box office as defined by theater, theatrical release in Variety or wherever they report it. Box office mojo is a, a um, 
is a website that reports all the numbers. It's not going to do that because it's going to make millions in VOD because everyone will have seen it by the time it comes out in the theaters. And, in fact, a lot of theaters won't show it, so it made, whatever, $70,000. I hope they're trying to rework that. I don't know what's going on with that, and I'm actually not quite sure what the rules are. I mean, every couple of years when these strikes come up, you know, with SAG or Writers Guild or whatever, it's always about new technology, whether it's DVD or, you know, they had the same thing with when home video started and all that stuff. And I realize as, a, as an art podcast, we're talking an awful lot about business, but I think it's important <laughs> to, to note that, you know, I don't know exactly what is going on with that, but they're saying like they don't. They, I know they know the numbers, and I don't know if that's being shared with me or not, but it's always been that your payment on a film is the theatrical run. You know, we have residuals. Yeah. Residuals are when it airs on television, when it airs foreign, when it airs on cable, when it airs on, you know, home video, any of that. So your money that you, you make a lot of money when you shoot it, and that's your money for the theatrical release. So this is the theatrical release. But these are movies that we're not making a lot of money doing. So something has to change there. I'm all fine with the paradigm shifting if people are, you know, watching movies at home more because, you know, I have a 52-inch, you know, plasma screen and surround sound and all that stuff and I sit really close to it and it's like going to the movies without some asshole talking behind me or texting in front of me. <laughs> but... Uh, it can be pretty great, but it's like I do still love that uh, experience. It's, great. it's my favorite thing in the world, but it's becoming less and less so. And the other big thing for me is, um, you know, an aesthetic one, which is I love film, you know, uh, and they're not showing movies on film anymore unless you go to, you know, revival houses or occasionally once in a while. You have to find these blogs. So you're looking at a big TV anyway. Um it's a little bit bigger, but it's a television. I mean, it's a video. It's not. It doesn't look like film, and and I and I miss that. You know. Yeah. Now, did you come from a, like your family upbringing? Was that was that an artistic one, or were you? Yeah, I mean, you, well, you're Southside Chicago, right? Uh, well, I grew up uh, in the Northwest suburbs in Arlington Heights. My father, oh, did you? Yeah, my father's no family idea. from the South Side, but he. I mean, that's why we're Sox fans. Is that why you're asking? No, no, no. <laughs> well, because I'm from Streamwood. I was like, right, right. Well, that's yeah, so weird. Yeah. Our, we probably were at Woodfield Mall together. Oh, and yeah. And then yeah. drunk at Old Town I Alice. saw Die Hard at Woodfield <laughs> 1 and 2 in 70 millimeter opening weekend. That's so funny. But, uh, yeah. I um, Was it working class? Because it almost. Yeah, my parents were corporate and they loved, you know, uh, the arts. Uh, the arts. They loved movies, especially. My, my parents loved music. Um, um, I grew up with lots of movies in the house. My dad had, you know, great records, mostly jazz and classical, but a lot of like, uh, you know, cool rock records and R&B records. And I had uncles that were, you know, introduced me a lot of great, you know, rock records and uh, lots of books. My father's an avid reader um, and, you know, went to the theater and stuff like that. I, I, so, so lots of that stuff around. And So it wasn't a shock when you... No, I mean, like, my brother, Jim, is, he's in a film, uh, right now he runs the, the um, University of Wisconsin Cinematheque, uh, he, he, he worked for uh, George Eastman House in Rochester, New York, which is uh, the birthplace of motion picture film, and uh, a huge art, it's like the second largest archive of motion picture film in North America, it's like where the original camera negative of Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz is and stuff. Wow, and then, that's awesome. 
there's the archive and a museum, and then there's a theater there where she programmed. So he was like assistant curator of the archive and then the, ran the theater. And now he runs the theater at Wisconsin Cinematheque, and he runs the Wisconsin Film Festival. Um, but at an early age, you know, and we have two other brothers, one older and one uh, younger, and, and he and I are two years apart. We just really just uh, absorbed this stuff. And actually, we're doing both exactly what we wanted to be doing. He's doing exactly what he wanted to be doing with his life, and I'm doing what I want to be doing with my life. I'd like to be doing more of it, making more money doing it, but <laughs> we're doing it. And we just loved movies, and um, our parents took us to a lot. You know, first the Disney movies and all that stuff in the theater, and then um, my mother went to work for a company called On TV. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, I remember. We, okay. had a, we had a scrambled fake box. So, yeah. So my mom worked for On TV, which, if you don't know, a lot of people are familiar with Z Channel, which was a West Coast version of that, which is before cable, if you can imagine. You know, there were four channels. That makes me feel really my age. We're around <laughs> the same age, yeah. So before cable, and even when there was cable, they didn't have cable in the in the Chicago suburbs. It was a it was a big, you know, local government thing. Yeah, um, that's right. They didn't have it for a long time. It wasn't until the mid '80s, I think, that cable came to. Chicago suburbs so um, we had on TV which was a box and had a switch on and off and um, they showed movies it wasn't 24 hours I think it was maybe they had 12 hours a day adult movies at one point they had adult movies later on but they showed a mix of whatever would be on HBO now a year after it came out plus old films foreign films so we saw like you know the Woody Allen movies the Mel Brooks movies also Channel 11 PBS station would show you know uh, not just like Monty Python but like they showed uh, the producers or they showed uh, um, showed, I remember and this was before home video too so it's like it wasn't like you go oh we'll go rent that now there's like a million ways to see a movie but it was like the producers that, that was a movie that my parents always talked about seeing you know and we saw at a young age, finally, Channel 11 showed it one night, you know, with limited commercial interruption. It was like, wow. But it was a big deal to try and find these movies. Yeah, I remember, too, the, when they showed The Deer Hunter. Remember like the third Channel 32? The Deer which Hunter was, was, was before... the first movie to be shown without uh, being edited. Yeah, I couldn't. And they told everyone, you know, this we won't be editing out any of the how the fuck did they get away with it it was such an important movie the same I mean, thing happened great. with schindler's list uh you know uh 15 years later they were going to show it we're not because it wouldn't be fair to to the movie to do it so they did that do you feel like because i especially people of that generation of like growing up and it was chicagoans that i know that there was so much great like local programming yeah as well as like just the because they just showed old reruns and stuff, and yeah. like all that shit was like, that's how I I really became interested in absolutely writing and comedy. It's yeah, I mean Channel Thirty Two. You talked about WFLD, which is probably a Fox affiliate yeah. now, but uh, there's still Channel Sixty or Sixty. The son of Sven still on. That's all I know. Right. Well, <laughs> Sven but even before Sven there was Creature Features. So yeah, that's where we saw all the Universal monster movies: uh, Frankenstein, Dracula. Um, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein was like a big one, you know, as a kid. Uh, but then just like, you know, weird stuff like Channel 7, the the 330 movie, which was the movie that was on right after school. Big movies. But uh, I think it was a two-hour time slot and it was 40 minutes of commercial. So you'd see Planet of the Apes, but like 
the movie Planet of the Apes began with Charlton Heston already on the planet, like fighting the apes. Like, yeah, the whole, I remember like, them doing part, <laughs> part of the movie where he's like an astronaut and explains the whole thing. And the ending made no sense because you were just like, you didn't care though. It was really weird. You were really into it and excited about it. Yeah. And then when you finally did see the whole thing, it was like, oh, I remember Psycho seeing that. Um, you know, to this day, she gets, she takes the money, she she drives. She stops on the road overnight. A cop stops her. She gets scared because she has all this money that she stole, Marion Crane and Janet Lee. And then she goes and changes the car, exchanges, gets another car. The cop's watching her the whole time. She gets that other car. She leaves. Then it's the next day. She goes to the Bates Motel. In the TV version, she leaves. She goes to the Bates Motel. You don't even realize that she's in a completely different car. It's like, it's like, what? But you never thought about it. You know what I mean? And to this day, when I see Psycho, and I've seen it a lot, in my mind, I'm always going like, oh, wow, this is like the, I forget that this is in the movie. I always think of that other version as being the real version. You know, (laughs) this is like some extended version of it, you know? Yeah. Well, that's the first director's cut, really. Yeah. 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 (laughs) It's like, well, you know, you talk about cutting like in those days theaters had there's so many different version, versions of famous movies because theaters would have uh you know the print so like the wild bunch is a famous movie for when it first came out warner's you know they were getting a lot of complaints about the violence and warner sent notes to theaters about trimming certain scenes so Peckinpah's cut didn't come out until the 90s, like his, his actual cut. That, that was the first one released in theaters that had all these flashbacks and things like that. But theaters also cut willy-nilly scenes of his because they thought it was too violent or, or whatever. And it must have been just infuriating for someone like him, uh, who was like such a great artist, to just know that this was going on and it was totally out of his control. I heard an amazing story last summer... Tom Irwin, who is a Steppenwolf actor, told me that uh, he saw the movie Zulu, which is a great movie. Uh, it's Michael Caine's first big part, uh, in, uh, which is about you know the Zulu War. And in, at a drive-in, I can't remember where it was. It was in Illinois or Michigan or something somewhere. It was either a drive-in or a small like, family-run theater. And every time one of the nude uh, Zulu women came on the screen, the projectionist would hold a piece of cardboard in front of it, the lens. <laughs> That's awesome. So he would have to sit there and watch the movie and do this. And this is, we're talking about that, that movie's uh, mid-60s. He's probably seeing a re-release of it. And again, this is before home video. So, you know, we saw things in the theater. You know, yeah. you didn't see Jaws on the initial release because I was too young to see it when it first came out. I saw it, you know, later on when they re-released it. But, like, he was seeing this in the 70s and they were still doing that, which is just crazy. That's really funny. Well, that's a good. That's the one good thing about digital. I guess they can't <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hide and, the tits. <laughs> well, and I'll also tell you, like, with digital, like, you know, we had a problem on Cheap Thrills where we I shot the scene that was, like, the most... It was the thing I'm most proud of that I've ever done, which is like it was the most physically and emotionally demanding scene I've ever shot. And it was so like uh, draining, but it was very cathartic. I felt that feeling finally like, uh, you know, okay, this is what it feels like when it works, you know, the the, um, the art of, of acting and filmmaking too because the camera operator was like, 
it was one of those things where it was like we had no time and no money and like there was um art in this shot and and uh things special effects that had to go right and the camera operating had to be just right and all this stuff and i wrote a blog about how what a great like experience this was and this this tap opened in me emotionally when i did it that it was like it's like that 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 magic moment that you've always waited for and you've heard about, you know, you start to doubt that it exists, but then there it is. And you don't know how you got there and you've done your homework and everything, but it, it just had to happen and it happens. Right. And everyone like was in sync and the camera was in the right place and all the art and everything worked and the effects works and everything. People applaud after the shot, which is a rare thing on a set for, for something to happen. And, um, nowadays, you know, everything's recorded on a little microchip. Somebody took it and misplaced it and oh, it fuck. got it. It got recorded over, oh, like, a, like, a, like you would have with an old cassette tape. Oh fuck, that's heartbreaking. <laughs> Which I found out two days later. Now oh. I had written a blog about how what a amazing like oh. experience it was doing this for me, and which is something I've never done before. And you don't get to see it. And I didn't get to see it. I'm kind of glad that I didn't. I think they asked me if I wanted to look at it at one point. I'm kind of glad that I didn't. Now there were two cameras operating, and there was one that was operating, but so uh, that was capturing the scene, sort of like the what they would call the master or something. But what wasn't there was my performance, uh, my reactions, which is like just the A camera was just on my face or whatever. So uh, yeah, heartbreaking. It was a day. It was just like. Okay, I know I could just lose it on everybody, but I can. And I know I didn't talk to the director or the producer like for the most of the day. And then I said at the end of the day, I said, okay, this is what we're going to do. When we're done, finished for the day, we're going to shoot this again. Um, anybody that wants to stay can stay. Anybody that needs to go can go. Because I knew we had the effects and all that stuff. We just really just needed my stuff. And I just did it three more times. And what I had even written about in the in the um blog and it had was true because we had done a scene after it was open was that tap had been open now and it didn't it it didn't close it didn't close and it was and it hasn't closed since almost a year later that's what's important and we shot the scene again and we did it again and it works and it's so much so that when i watched the movie for the first time i had forgotten that that had ever happened it's seamless but the important lesson from that, and I would impart that to anyone else, was that it was what was important about it was what I got out of it. And what I got out of it was what I got out of from doing it, the doing of it. And it's great if you do it and then someone gets to see it. But that may never happen. Like you could do a whole movie and it could, they could not lose the tape and everyone could see it. And, you know, you know, on the set, but then like, you know, it never comes out or, or, or no one goes to see it, you know? So you take what you can get and you have this amazing experience of, if you do a play, nobody sees that again. Yeah, you know? I was thinking the same thing. Um, so, so you take that and then if the movie's good and when it gets cut together, then it's like that's another, that's an extra. Then if it comes out, like if someone's going to put it out, whether it's on video or in the theater or whatever, that's extra too. And then if people like it, extra if you get other work from it extra you have to look at all that stuff as extra and it's life is you know as an artist is much better that way because the experience of the creation of it and what you get out of doing it is is everything 
And what I was going to say, this is how you started the conversation, and I kind of went off on a tangent. Somebody said, like, you know, that's a negative of digital, that that could happen. But, you know, with film, things can get ruined, too, you know? Yeah. Things get overexposed. Uh, speaking of Peckinpah again, like, I think the entire first couple of weeks or maybe a month of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which is another movie that got hacked up all over the place, um, they got the dailies back because you, you had to send it to the lab and get the dailies. There was sand in the in the lens. It was all unusable. The whole thing had to be reshot. And as you know, these these you know working on these things, it's like capturing lightning in a bottle sometimes in terms of performance and stuff. Or sometimes actors aren't even available. You know, like again, um, so it could happen with film too. You know, but it is a little dicey with digital. Digital is a little scary because talking with my brother, having come from the archival world and stuff. Um, you know, film gets scratched and things like that and has to be restored, but there is no restoration um, model in place for digital. It has a limited shelf life, so and they haven't figured it out yet. So we could be looking at all the stuff that we're making now as being non-existent in, you know, 10, 20 years. A lot of it I'm okay with. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. But, like, you know, in terms of, like, our history, it's like, you know, you can still look at a, you know, a silent film from 1912 yeah. that's been restored, you know, um, by places like George Eastman House and stuff. But studios are destroying prints or giving them away. And they're going to become a thing of a past, and it's extremely short-sighted. It's a big mistake. Yeah, that is very... I want I want to go back to what you were saying about that that moment the 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 tap, you say taps or yeah yeah like a, uh, <laughs> it's a like, tap opened yeah yeah because it's like the floodgates opened yeah. I feel like I mean any performer you're always I always feel like I've been searching for something I don't sure. feel like I found it yet or like there's but there, you have these epiphanies or moments where you're like oh fuck okay I'm right. doing but like that it sounds like that was a major like huge huge. Yeah, and it, but then is there like it, now? Is there something else that you're? Everything's different now after that because, I, I mean, I think my confidence level is just up knowing that I can do that. Um, so when I go into an audition now, it's different. Whether I get it or not, I know that I've done a, a good job. You know, uh, I know that that the biggest thing is trust. It's like what separates some of us from maybe the 1% or 2% of people that are like, you know, work all the time is confidence, you know, and they not only have confidence to kind of come in and, you know, get the job, but like they know that they're going to be good. So many of us are neurotic and unsure. And once you've let yourself know that you're going to be good or you've done something where you've like seen like, Oh, I can do it. Then it's there. I'm not saying that's that they're going to be there. There will always be times when I will, um, you know, have doubt. I mean, it's I don't I, I can't imagine a person that has, is just you know confident all the time, um, and I'm not sure I'd want that anyway. But um, I have that confidence now. But I am a I don't know what you said. You're searching. I am I am a seeker. I want. It's not that. It used to be before years and years of therapy, which has been, I mean, is at least as important as anything else in my work, which is, you know, psychoanalysis, a very important part of my life and my work. Um, years and years of that have taught me that I am, I've gone from someone who 
I just have to keep doing this because I'm not good enough to it's it's good and I want to do better and I want to do more it's not like I, I haven't done good enough I feel great about what I've done and where I am but I want to keep getting better and the people that I really admire are, are like that you know you don't see Meryl Streep or Jack Nicholson um, you know resting on their laurels you never even saw Marlon Brando do it and he hated it but he was always <laughs> amazing <laughs> in the worst weirdest stuff um, you don't see I mean look at Philip Roth he just retired without ever having written anything bad and getting better some of his books in his, his later you know years are some of his best um, musicians seem to be an exception to that rule in a lot of ways I mean there's some people that continue to tour and are great like I just saw Neil Young last year and sounds as good as ever if you close your eyes same thing with Don Rickles who I saw two or three months ago my parents took me to see him and he comes out on stage and he's all hunched over and he's 87 88 years old and you kind of go oh ugh. yeah and then he opens his mouth and if you if your eyes were closed you'd swear it was 1967 yeah, he's, he's just amazing, and I didn't stop laughing for an hour. And it's like he's not going to stop, you know what I mean? Right. Um, maybe Rickles is different because he's sort of just doing the same thing, but it's just still funny, you know what I mean? It kills me. But people are just like constantly like, you know, growing and rediscovering and finding out new things. You know, it's almost like a kid like seeing things for the first time and just being like amazed by it. I'm not saying I spend my days in a perpetual state of awe and amazement <laughs> look at that rainbow you know but i think my eyes are open up a lot more um as, I, as i've gotten older as i've matured as i've been through some hard times and some good times and as i've done more therapy and as i've worked more i've discovered that joy i think that everybody starts doing this because we, we like the attention and for one reason or another uh, we didn't. We don't feel like we got the love that we needed. And then, if you just stay that way, I think it's like the path to destruction. You know? Yeah. You have to discover a reason to be doing it, or otherwise do something else. And I discovered that I was lucky. You know, I was lucky to have a good, you know, therapist and to like want to know and to want to keep doing this cuz i lo i came from a place as we talked about at the beginning of just loving this i mean i love movies i love actors i love writing and music and all this stuff and and i want to know about those people and i want to read about them and all this stuff and and i'm I, look let's not fool ourselves i'm not under any illusions about what this business is and that it is a business but that doesn't negate my respect for the artistry and the craftsmanship a stand-up comedy is a perfect example where it's like i did it a little bit i still do it occasionally very rarely i did sketch i still do sketch occasionally a little bit more i'm in awe of what stand-ups do i don't want to do that i couldn't do that um there's an amazing amount of dedication to a certain form that i'm in awe of the people that like do that really well and i wouldn't ever dream to to attempt that that's that's your thing you know that's their thing same thing with music it's like i i've sat down and i've noodled on the guitar and all that stuff and i tried drums and all that but i don't i don't 
have the aptitude for it. So like I, I have the greatest amount of respect and awe for for artists of any stripe that that really like, you know, keep pushing the the keep pushing the envelope. You know, is is it almost better to be a little bit older as an actor? Because it seems like what I sort of hear you saying is the more you know yourself and the more you become comfortable in yourself. Like I just refer to myself in the twenties. Yeah. I, I was a fucking idiot. <laughs> well, you don't like, know anything. You don't, but and you and don't know that you don't know anything. That's, that's the, the worst. worst part. Yeah. yeah. And I say I was thirty three when I realized that I didn't know anything, and it was a good feeling. It was a good feeling. Yeah. Because I was like, oh, okay, now I get it. And then you know, and then you realize you didn't really know that much then, like later on, you know. Um, so yes. It's just like I was just talking to our friend Demorge, uh Brown about this the other day, and he said that and, you know, I just feel you just relaxed. I mean, confident is one word, and relaxed is another. It's just like you're relaxed. When you're relaxed, take acting in front of a camera. Those are the best. Those are the best actors because they're not they're not acting. So you just just you just like absorbed right into the role, you know. And um, someone else like the next day said the same thing. You know, they were just older and they just felt relaxed. And You know it's different when you can start to watch your own work. Like I can actually watch my own work now and I, I can't go back and look at that old stuff because it's just like anything before like about eight years ago is just like painful because I can see myself just pretending, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> you know? So it's like, yeah, being older, it's like you have that one thing to deal with which is the physical you know, aspect of things, but it hasn't been so bad. I mean, I can go on Facebook and look at the people who I graduated high school with and, and be like, you're doing pretty good. You know what I mean? <laughs> like yeah. you're another guy that's aged, you know, really well too. You know, it's like, you would never guess that I'm you're, you're 44 age. and a half. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you're, you're at least going to say your age on here. I'm not going to, although I, uh, savvy listeners can look that up on IMDb. <laughs> much to my chagrin. Yeah. It's, well, it's too, it's like we sort of have to maintain ourselves too. It's like people back in the Midwest are like, yes, let's put some more cheese on the face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, but you know. It also is cold there for nine months of the year. So yeah. you're just like, what? Well, I'll just sit here and eat. But it's still, I mean, like I could be really gray or, you know. Yeah. No, I, I, could I, be, I'm, I'm. My teeth could have fallen out. I'm pretty fortunate. I mean, there were some lessons that were definitely learned from like my father's, you know teeth fell out because he didn't floss so i started doing that in 1985 you know um my relatives you know are you know there's alcoholism there's you know obesity there's diabetes there's all these things that i'm uh you know genetics are a you know you're predisposed to something but you can affect that by changing your behavior it doesn't mean you're going to get it. it just means that you're more inclined to you know indulge in those behaviors and i find myself being drawn towards those behaviors and i have indulged in those behaviors but <laughs> i for the most part prefer to feel better and younger it's not so much i suppose there's got to be some vanity in in terms of it in terms of being a performer or being an actor or whatever but uh i just feel better if i take care of myself more yeah, it's also yeah. That's a, the one thing I think people. And if they, you suffer from depression or anxiety, which I think I've revealed by saying I go to psychoanalysis, <laughs> um, then uh, you're not helping yourself by you know 
doing that stuff because it, it, it certainly not in excess because it's it just makes it worse you know yeah i mean it covers it up for that night when you're having a great time and then it's just like downhill slide you know yeah i did it was just because I'd look at the pictures of you, that sounded creepy, but mm. <laughs> I've repeatedly look at the pictures of you. I've been outside you. your window. <laughs> I just, just, yesterday I said something, the wrong thing to somebody from the stage, and it sounded like I was trying to fuck this fat old man in the back <laughs> of the I was like, I, that's not what I meant. But uh, the, the the pictures of you and with Herzog, I mean, was uh. that like a huge, just because, I mean, I love... I mean, who doesn't fucking love Herzog? Yeah. But I mean, was that just like one of yeah. those like holy fuck? I'm getting to work with this guy. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I had this class, and I was already in the movies, as I said, as a kid. Um, but then I had this class in high school. I think only one or two years they taught it. This teacher named Dale Dassenville at, at Buffalo Grove High School taught film studies, and I was like, yeah, I'm taking that. So I was 16. And um, we just watched movies on video. Um, you know, there was like the pan scan videos of things. But, you know, like I said, like if a movie was good, it was good. So we watched The Maltese Falcon and The Godfather and uh, Potemkin. And uh, we watched Dirty Harry. And we watched um, Strozek, Herzog Strozek. And I had never seen anything like that before. Um it blew my mind because it's like a documentary but it's not a documentary and I hadn't seen Cassavetes or anything like that when I was a real little kid I saw One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest on television and that seemed like a documentary to me since if you don't know who Jack Nicholson is it, it's so realistic you know but this was Strozek was like is this a documentary and it was a real guy who was mentally challenged that was the star Bruno S that was the star of several of Herzog's films and you know, it's this guy from Germany who's mentally disturbed who moves to uh, Milwaukee, somewhere in Wisconsin. I don't, I've never seen the oh movie. Now I have and to see it. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, this sort of, like, view of America, like a guy going to America, you know, land of uh, dreams and, and, you know, the stark reality of, like, moving, like, you know, bumfuck Wisconsin, you know. <laughs> and it was, like, amazing, okay? So now this, this that happened and, and remind me to circle back because something else happened around the same time. So then I was shooting the movie Great World of Sound with Craig Zobel. the movie we made before Compliance in 2005 in Charlotte. And I was coming back for a weekend or, yeah, like Friday through Monday or something when we had off. And uh, my manager at the time was like, uh, you have this audition with him. It was a casting director, Edie Belasco, who I know. Uh, Rescue Dawn, some action movie or whatever, you know. And then he sends me the breakdown, and it says, directed, director Werner Herzog. And I'm like, you fucking idiot. Like, right? <laughs> and, uh, and it's with him. So I go, and I audition for him, and he's there. And, you know, very lovely man, you know, very kind, smiling. And uh, he's there with his son, who's uh, videotaping it. And then, uh, and then I got a part in it, and it was a little part in... But it was, you know, in Thailand with, with um, Christian Bale and uh, our friend Toby Huss and um, all these great guys. And, you know, it was an amazing, truly amazing experience. I mean, I have, you know, stories that I've told many times, and he was just a, a great guy. But one day towards the end of shooting, I just said, you know, I just wanted you to know that I, you know, had seen this film, Strozek, when I was 16. And 
I'm just changed my life. And like, so this is just like means so much to me. And he like, you know, smile, this beaming smile. And he gave me a big hug, you know, and it was just like, it's so great to like be able to have that experience. I mean, you know, you kind of go like, I could look at it like, oh, I don't have a very big part in that movie or whatever. And, you know, but it didn't matter. Again, it was one of those experiential things of just like, I got to hang out with him for a couple of weeks, you know, in Thailand. That's, I mean, it doesn't get any better. Yeah. I was going to say like at the same time, again, I was really into movies, but I was, I guess probably 15. I saw um, Blue Velvet. And that movie, similarly, my brother had seen it and he's like, you got to see this. And, and I, that movie was like, not only is it like a masterpiece of like, you know, filmmaking and, and all these things about like, oh, really seeing what a director does and sound design and visuals and stuff. But it was about the, also about the darkness that lurks beneath the surface of the suburbs, which is where I grew up. And I just never, ever thought about it that way. I just sort of took where I lived for granted. Even though I was, you know, suffered from what I was undiagnosed, you know, as depression or whatever. Um, that just opened up my mind about movies and about life and about myself in every, every way. So, like, those experiences are, you know, especially at that age, you know, when you're, you're, you still have that tiny fragile eggshell mind as Jim Morrison said and I think can get in there like that yeah I saw that movie in high school too and it was it just I was just nothing was it's so cinematically was the same people go um, people often bring up understandably so the sexual component of it and that wasn't even really a part of my consciousness about it at the time I certainly was aware of that and I'm sure I was aroused by it but well, she's, when I, she's insanely attractive. <laughs> yeah, and then there's just these, you know, these things that, you know, it's the, but the sexuality of the, the sort of like the, you know, crossing of the, of the boundaries of the sexuality in that movie are really just a part of the larger sort of message. Right. So I don't, I don't make that connection, but that people think about that movie as being a movie about sex, but it, it, it I, you know, I never really, that's not the first thing I think about when I think about it. It probably did really fuck me up sexually, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, the scene where he start, uh, my grandmother came in when he, right at the scene where he was going to start, like, fisting her or what, like, that weird, he's got the mask and he's. Oh, it's, you know, is that what you imagine he's doing? That's so funny. Well, I'm a sick I get bastard, I guess. <laughs> no, I mean, maybe he is. It's a, he has a pair of scissors, yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, my grandmother was like, I'm going to come and, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I panicked. It was. Because it, like, for my, I mean, that was a mind-blowing film for me, but for a 70-year-old woman. <laughs> I remember, you know, I used to go to movies with my mom or my dad, you know, all the time. And my mom and I went to see this movie, uh, Mad Dog and Glory, with uh, De Niro and uh, Uma Thurman and oh, Bill yeah. Murray. And uh, John McNaughton, a Chicago filmmaker. And and then there's this scene, uh, De Niro plays like a mousy guy, but he finally gets to have sex with Uma Thurman. And it's, like, really awkward, and he's bad at it and stuff. And I was just sitting next to my mom, and I'm just like... And it's not a scene that's played for comedy either. It's like a dramatic scene. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, fuck this. I'm like, I'm going to be very careful about like what I go like see with my mom. I'm going to stick to Crocodile Dundee too. <clears throat> Do you think there's a reason? Because you mentioned Naughton being a Chicago filmmaker. It's just like, why? What makes Chicago? Like, I know, I know some people get irritated by how many Chicagoans are in Los Angeles and how many of them are really know. good at what they do. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I um, 
there's probably plenty more that do, that are shitty at it. I don't know. I mean, yeah, well, I, yeah, that is true. But like, you know, it's like the the ones that stand out. I mean, or people from Sarasota, Florida, or whatever. But um, it's interesting because, like, I want to address that point directly. But you bring up a, a larger point, which is like, I I wasn't bringing up that movie because it was a Chicagoan, but it does come up, and I think so much of art. I can sit here and talk about like what I do and how I do it and how I approach my work and all that stuff. But the frank truth is that I'm not necessarily conscious of most of that when I'm doing it. I'm conscious afterwards that, oh, this is I did it this way because I was, you know, or sometimes I unconsciously imitate another actor or filmmaker's work or whatever. Um, I'm emulating something that's part of my DNA because these movies have been a part of my life for so long. So like, but I do find it interesting that the Chicago then finds its way into the conversation like that because things do it's I don't think there's anything mystical or spiritual about that. I think we're both pretty atheistic here, but like <laughs> there is something to uh the unconscious that is uh maybe there is something to to that that's connected to that um I used to think that there really weren't a whole lot of great films made in Chicago and there there aren't that many and that no. might have to do with economic reasons more than anything else well, but yeah. um but the theater and the, those sort of things certainly the theater i mean it's just like on the one hand it's a place where you have to just like these people we were talking about you know fighting surviving that climate you know you're also fighting for you know stage time and um you know that's a, like a survival uh, sort of instinct that kicks in doing that stuff. But for those of us that left, um, to me, there's always there are only there's only so far you could go there, unless you were like a Dave Pesquese who like had this you know lucrative you know commercial career or or, or something like that. Um, uh, you could only make so much money. You could only have you know, one scene in a movie if it came to shoot there or a TV show or whatever. And that was becoming less and less anyway uh, when I left in the 90s. So, um, but it does develop a good, I, I suppose, a work ethic. I mean, my family, uh, you know, certainly is a, a strong uh, moral morality uh, that was um, imbued in me. Uh, a good sense of right and wrong. And, and um, in terms of art, you know, I just did this movie with um, uh, with Robert Redford, and I was I was speaking with him, and he said, uh, I, he asked me where I was from, and I told him Chicago, and he said, uh, that's the greatest American city. And I said, uh, we were in Cleveland <laughs> shooting this movie. We were in uh, Cleveland doing um, uh, this uh, Captain America movie. And I, I said, I said, I would agree with you, Chicago, this is the greatest American city, I said, except for the weather. And uh, Redford said, uh, yeah, uh, except maybe Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he's actually producing a, what is it? It's like a mini-series, documentary mini-series for CNN called Chicagoland. Really? Yeah, and it's all about Studs Terkel, Sandberg, uh, Oh God! I'm I hope he does Royco, Nelson Algren, okay, Algren, all these guys, and it's all going to be based around that. Fuck, that's awesome because Algren, Royco, and Turkle are like my gods. Yeah, so it's like you know, I think it's about the city and the politics and all these kinds of things, but it's sort of centered around these, you know, these authors and these artists and stuff. And you know, I don't know what uh, 
Whit Redford's uh, fascination with it. I know that he shot ordinary people there, and he shot other things there. I certainly they shot part of the sting there, but uh, he's a guy from here. You know, he's a guy from Van Nuys, and certainly probably Chicago is as exotic to him as as L.A. Uh, was to us. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a yeah. It's a definitely, if you've never been to Chicago, I couldn't imagine. You must, and if you're a Van Nuys kid, yeah, yeah, it's like a, and especially back in when they like shot the sting. It's such a rumble tumbled city back sure. then. And I don't know that they shot that much of it there, but uh, uh, there are a few exteriors and stuff that look like they were shot there. But, yeah, uh, you know, I'm sure he'd been there many times before uh, that. He was probably there for you knowing his involvement with politics for, you know, in 68 and all that stuff. So Yeah. Well, I guess we end there. <laughs> time. <clears throat> Jesus. There's so much more we could uh, – talk about but uh well we can always have you back sure it, um it. where can people uh, you have the twitter and yeah, you have twitter, other things pat underscore healy h-e-a-l-y i have a tumblr the uh the, the pat healy i follow that tumblr yeah that's mostly movie related stuff i try to keep it to that uh occasional dick pics <laughs> not my own of course <laughs> Um, and some really nice dick pics i want to add like did artsy yeah it's not gratuitous taste, tasteful nudes as yeah. we say and um, you know I'm around. I'm not hard to find. All right. Yeah, you you're, you are around. Yeah, I see I'm, your I'm, mug I, make, I make myself very accessible. Unless you're crazy. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, man. Thank you very much for listening to the show. If you uh, would like to donate some money, we would really be happy about that. I'd be thrilled. Uh, you just go to my feralaudio.com website there and uh, donate money. If you can't afford to, you could go through the, go through the, uh, buy some stuff on Amazon. Buy some stuff on Amazon, and I get a kickback. And so does Dustin Marshall, the great Dustin Marshall. And uh, do me a favor, go on iTunes, write a review, rate my show. That helps me. It helps me a lot. And uh, what else there? Check out the other shows on uh, Feral Audio. Uh, I hope you win. Thank you. And wonder if you ever met me. I'm a happy, stop the strong. A conclusion you can draw. Fill my mouth with class stream. And you know I'll say anything. There's that thing. Well, I mean, I may believe. 
branch of the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.